an impact on the enclave remains to be seen. Okay, thank you. Uh, moving to hands with one of those excellent pictures around, I believe it's Dr. Hunter. Hey, finance. Thanks. Hey, everyone. I have a question about training. Um, it's for CJ. Maybe Axel or Patrick might have thoughts on this also. CJ, you've mentioned um, before that some of your friends are involved in training Ukrainians on artillery systems. And we know, of course, that there are uh, training programs for a HIMARS and qualification of specific Western systems that are being provided to Ukraine. But what do we know about um, more general basic or uh, more advanced combat training in a general sense that's being undertaken uh, by Western forces for the purpose of standing up and uh, mobilizing reserve U- Ukrainian reserves? Yeah, thanks, Francis. That's a really good question. You know, I'll, I'll speak to is what I know. So, <coughs> excuse me. On top of, on top of individual tra- training efforts that sort of volunteers did, you know, they put together ad hoc classes. There wasn't much of a sense of like the basic uh, military training or BMT going on, at least led by the, the Westerners until the UK got involved. And so this is something, we, something we've talked about a few times, but the details are a little bit scarce. But they said they were going to train about 200 people a day, which is very reasonable. It's, uh, you know, it's always could be more, but there are uh, sort of people that are, you know, five months in now being trained from scratch by Westerners, which is a big change from everyone else who was already a specialist who got trained in something else. But, um, you know, what I would point out as, as we talked, like, just if I could pitch something is, you know, we talked about the high Mars being a 12 to 16 week course and being condensed to three. Uh, I don't want training to be the limiting factor in any of these situations. I think with high Mars, we showed that uh, anything could be trained and, you, you know, Ukraine is the motivation and the technical skill to really learn anything. So if we talk about any other platform, whether it be planes, trains, automobiles, uh, air defense, I think uh, the Ukrainians can learn it much faster than we probably can even teach it. And so sort of anything should be on the table. But as far as basic, uh, you know, military skills, I think the UK is the only people doing that uh, openly, at least. But maybe Patrick and Axel know more. There's a lot of training ongoing at the moment. But Patrick, please go. Yes, yeah, CJ, uh, that's that tracks the best information I have, though. Recent reporting indicates the U.S. may be involved in a covert capacity some to some degree. It's not clear. Uh, there was a pretty big op-ed that came out a few days ago indicating that there was some covert activity both in Ukraine and in uh, neighboring nations, both from uniformed and non-uniformed U.S. personnel. It's a little bit vague on exactly what that means. I would point out, though, that even if it's 200 a day, that's just not enough. Uh, Zelensky was admitting to anywhere from 40 to 60 KIA, another 500 wounded in the Donbass a few weeks ago. Pretty good information indicates that's up to about 1,000 casualties a day as Sverdonetsk was falling. Now, killed, wounded, what the ratio looks like there, it's a little hard to tell. But it's it's not good. The, uh, if, if people are interested, I've got it in my timeline. Sky News did a great interview with a uh, Ukrainian company commander from one of their Marine units. He said 80% of his pre-war troops are gone. They're either dead or they've been injured so badly they've been invalided out. And the guys coming in, they just don't have enough training. They don't have enough experience. They've lost. the. Uh, they're losing, at least in that sector. A lot of these six, seven, eight-year veterans who've had a lot of uh, military experience, who've had that uh, pre-war training, who who just understand the military, understand how, how to operate, what to do, and they're being thrown into this positional war in the, in uh, 
in the Donbass front, and they're just getting chopped to pieces. Uh, same interview. Ukrainian combat medic conf- confirmed, you know, what most most vets on this call know. The new guys who don't know anything, they're taking huge casualties. The veterans, you'll eventually get those guys through time and, and just getting lucky if you're the Russians because they know what they're doing. The new guys who've had maybe two weeks of training and then they're thrown into a combat unit, they don't know anything and they don't know what they don't know and they don't have t- the time to learn it before they get killed or injured in a lot of cases. Uh, I, I have serious worries about the training pipeline, to be totally honest with you. Uh, and it's not just that. It's the loss of experienced personnel, which I think is the real danger there. So if you don't mind, Patrick, because uh, I think I, I sort of agree and disagree. And I wonder what your thoughts were, because, you, you know, you're much more of a, a studier and a student of history than I am, because obviously, you know, this is not a, you know, a new problem for the Ukrainians. If if that one unit had 80 percent losses, you know, probably the losses in other units are, are mixed, but but still quite substantial. And we know that the U.S. and other countries have overcome this sort of specific problem you're talking about in the past, because I think personally, when we talk about numbers, right? I think uh, the, the the big, you know, breaking point of whether or not the force generation is good or bad or has met the the mark will come during the offensive. Because as you and I well know, they're going to take a lot more casualties when they have to move out of these defensive positions. And and as you pointed out, they are taking quite a few casualties. So I guess if I could just push back a little bit, how do you think the casualties are going to play out in the offensive? And and how have you seen other countries throughout history kind of get through this problem? Well, I mean, CJ, you're right. We the U.S. has had similar issues. I mean, the Second World War for us is the prime one. You had units like, you know, our, our better units that were training for two years before they deployed, uh, the Airborne and a few others. And then you had uh, just regular GI infantry and armor units that would train for maybe six months. And then they're in North Africa. And the lesson from that was very bloody. Uh, students of history go look up, you know, Kasserine Pass, any, num- any number of other engagements where the U.S. Army in, in 43 really, really took it on the chin to the point where the British were looking at us and going, good God, the Americans can't fight. And people tend to forget that. But when we first got into that war, we didn't know what we were doing. We took a lot of cash. I mean, a lot of cash. And yeah, I mean, CJ, you're right. It's a not only is it on the attack, but you have to you have to learn through failure in a lot of cases. My concern is a lot. The Ukrainians have allowed themselves to get drawn into this kind of positional warfare in the east. And this is fundamentally different from attacking strung out Russian columns, attempting to push into the Ukrainian heartland. And the Russians, conversely, have finally wised up and figured out, oh, our old tactic of just smothering everything with huge amounts of fire and then creeping forward is not only working for us, but it's also probably the only thing they can do since their own units would shoot up badly in the early part of the war. Uh I, I don't think the Ukrainians should play their game, frankly. Hello? Hi, James. Sorry for that. Um, now it says my mic James, is on. Yeah, you can press the button on the bottom left the and mute yourself, and we'll get to you right away. Let's yes. use it as a walkie-talkie option, okay? Hi, James. Sorry for that. Um, now it says my mic is on. Yeah. Patrick, can you uh, hold on a sec? We finally have our, our speaker here after some serious issues. Yes, thank you. No, thank no, for no, 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 please. We finally ahead. got. I'm sorry for being late. No worries. Um, yeah, let's no use worries. it as a walkie talkie. Mic on, mic off. The button for that is on the bottom left. Yeah, it's, right now it says my mic is on. 
So I suppose I keep that on while I'm speaking and then turn it off. Yes, because yes, that's exactly speak, right. We we get an echo from from your from your end. So Patrick, to you, uh, finish your thought, please, and we'll get back to to James. Oh sure, I'll be I'll be brief. Um, I was just going to say I think it's a mistake for the Ukrainians to play into the Russians' hands on this. Uh, I, I mentioned it briefly the other day, allowing them to wage this kind of positional warfare where the Russians can get set get their heavy fires up and then smother Ukrainian positions is a recipe for huge casualties on both sides. And the Ukrainians can least afford it. Uh, in my opinion, they need to tr start trading space for time. They need to draw the Russians out of their positions, get them overextended, ensure that the Russians are overrunning by which I mean outpacing their own ability to support their lead elements and then destroy it. Uh, the goal here should be the Russian army. And I think it's still within Ukrainian capacity to achieve that goal. But you can't do it by getting into it, just an up, a, a, a straight up slugging match with Russian firepower. You're going to be trading Ukrainian troops that you can't spare and hoping that the Russians run out of artillery. And to, to my mind, there, there are much better ways to go about this. I think then, yeah, no, I'll, I'll leave it with this. It, it'll all come down to long-range artillery, of course, because that is my profession. But in all seriousness, you brought up a great point, right? Russia is very good at putting a lot of people and troops in one place and winning the day through, you know, sacrificing their own people. But if, if they're going to choose this method to be very static, then they're also, you know, consolidating their supplies, ammo and fuel, which make them good targets for HIMARS. So it really will uh, depend on the few coming weeks here how it goes. But no, it's it's dire nonetheless. So thank you, Patrick. I, uh, I just want to jump in there and uh, welcome our guest speaker, James Farwell. Thank you. Very nice to be here. I, uh, James, welcome, James, I'd like to introduce you to uh, Axel. He will be our uh, host for uh, for the discussion. And we do have an expert uh, panel of ex-serving members uh, here. I myself, uh, my name's Battle Moose. I'm the one that's been talking to you behind the scenes. So uh, to start off with, would you uh, care to tell us a little bit about yourself? We, could, we have a pretty open forum here, so uh, go ahead and take it away. Thanks very much. Again, it's an honor to be invited to participate in this, and thank you for doing so. I'm by background a lawyer and a political consultant. Since 9-11, uh, I have advised the Department of Defense on information warfare, strategic communication, and cyber strategy policy and legal authorities. <clears throat> I am the, excuse me, I am the author of uh, eight nonfiction books, mostly dealing with national security. My last two are entitled Information Warfare that the Marine Corps University Press published. And my latest book, which is called The Corporate Warrior, it's just been published. Uh, it's based on interviews with uh, Admiral Stravitas, General Petraeus, uh, General Botel, and other top shelf flag officers. And it looks at how the military forges strategy and looks at leadership, and it applies those precepts to both the military and to the to the business world. So as a little bit of propaganda, I encourage you to go on Amazon and buy the book. It's a great read, and it's informative and entertaining. Uh, I don't really talk very much about my work for the Department of Defense. Suffice to say that I have worked for different parts of the Department of Defense and the U.S. government uh, for 22 years at this point primarily in, in, uh, in those areas, although I have a geotopical expertise in the Middle East, Southwest Asia, 
and the uh, and the drug wars in Mexico, as well as the uh, uh, the Russian and Chinese notions of uh, hybrid warfare. All righty, thank you very much for that, James. Now. Um... We've been uh, reporting here on this space on the water report since uh, the very night uh, prior to the invasion. And uh, whilst I think you will have heard this from uh, Battle Moves and others, that uh, we are an eclectic bunch of people, but we have a global community uh, with many thousand members who, uh, say, drop in whenever they have time, and some who spend a lot of time here arguing, and as part of the overall information awareness and information warfare space, but we have uh, a tendency to bring in the speakers from all um, say walks of life pertaining to what is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we've gone through from uh, the military aspects of pretty much every part of combined arms into strategy and especially logistics. Uh, just yesterday, we had uh, General Ben Hodges, a uh, friend of the program with us yet again for one and a half hours, but also Melania Podolyak. So we tend to go through uh, things uh, even on a very granular level. And uh, so we very much appreciate that with your background, you have joined us today. So we will almost likely have well, a lot of questions from the audience. And um, yeah, so, so let's uh, let's go through uh, just, what we currently see. Just briefly, just briefly yes. notice to our audience, please do share and retweet the space. <laughs> yes. It's important. Um, please do tag James Arvel, our guest, and uh, press the button on the bottom right of your screen. It's a blue one with plus sign. And again, please share and retweet. And again, our guest today is James Arvel. Back to you. No problems. So. Yeah, um, we've been discussing a lot of strategic options in recent days, and one of one of which has which has been constantly considered was the question as to um, why the why we are seeing now the end of gradualism in terms of the strategic and operative support and the logistic support specifically by the United States uh, under the now more full swing land lease, which everybody appreciates significantly. The United Kingdom has uh, lent. A, substantially uh, reserves and its uh, support to Ukraine, as have other nations, and many, many others have not. How do you see the strategic view unfolding currently at the East Coast of the United States? James, you can unmute yourself. I believe you have muted mic. If not, because we cannot hear you, um, you, you will have to re-request to join which is a button on the bottom left of your telephone or your phone. Because right now we cannot hear you. Let me remove you from speaker and we'll get you back right away with the invite. But you have to request it by pressing a microphone button on the bottom left of your screen. So let's do it and do it once again. Can you all hear me? Yeah, he dropped all the speakers. I can hear you all. Can you hear me now? We can hear you. Thank you so much. Sorry, I lost you for a moment. It happens occasionally, so every time this happens, we will drop you from speakers, and then you request, and we get you back. It's Twitter, um, and Twitter spaces are still in beta. And now I cannot so hear anybody. We have to bear with it. You're good. Please proceed. James, can you hear I can us? hear you. Can you hear me? Perfect. Very well. I think our audience can, and everybody can hear you as well. As you can see, people are uh, sort of say giving emojis so you can see it on your screen as well. So, yeah, the question is, how do you see uh, the current strategic position of the United States unfolding with the land lease in place and a significant commitment in terms of logistics and arms coming? Um, are we seeing the end of gradualism in support? In Ukraine? Towards Ukraine, yeah. Well, I don't see that. I think that the uh, Biden administration is taking it step by step. Um, I think that what you saw at the outset was a fear that 
Ukraine would not withstand the invasion uh, on February 24th. And then when four weeks later, it turned out they were able to hold their ground, which you've seen as an incremental increase in the supply of arms. And I think that we need to remember two things. The first is the question of what arms do we supply? And the second, which may be as if not more important, is what we are doing to train the Ukraines to use the weapons that are NATO weapons. They know how to use the Soviet era weapons. They do not know how to use the NATO weapons. I'm told that, the, for example, the Javelin anti-tank weapons, we've given them a lot of them, but that they've had a tough time in being able to um, uh, uh, use these weapons. And as we give ever more sophisticated weapons to them, that's also a problem. I wish that we had made a decision earlier on just to say, fine, we're not going to let Russia succeed and gone whole hog to provide them not only with the weapons, but the training. But that wasn't the decision that was made. And I think that was partly caution because they weren't really quite sure just what the ability of the Ukraine military was. And also, I think that there is a legitimate concern about some of our more sophisticated weapons falling into the hands of the right. Where I think it stands today is something of a stalemate. Russia has had has had success in uh, capturing eastern Ukraine, but the, the military people, and again, I don't express opinions on armed conflict. My expertise is in information warfare and strategic communication and cyber. But it looks to me as if the, uh, the issue, based upon what uh, flag officers that I speak to tell me, is very much hanging in the balance. And it's like a race to the courthouse. Will we be able to get sufficient arms to the Ukrainians and train them on how to use these before Russia uses its mass of humanity to try and overwhelm the Ukrainians along with their artillery. Uh, it's a fact, apparently, that Russia is taking very, very serious casualties. Nobody knows exactly how many. I saw a report today that they had lost 35,000 dead, which means they probably had close to 100,000 dead or wounded, if that's true. But Putin doesn't care about these people. And so he's perfectly willing to spend the casualties to get what he wants. Now, what does Putin want? I think that remains unclear. And I think that with Putin, he has changed his point of view as matters have, have progressed. And so what his point of view is today may not be what it is tomorrow. Thank you, James. That was uh, on point. I completely agree about the importance of the training. I would slightly disagree regarding the shoulder-fired or basically anti-tank weapons, specifically the javelins, because from the report in the field, we hear that individual soldiers are able and combat veterans, since the war has been on since 2014, uh, they tend to basically um, assess javelin or a similar weapon in uh, as soon as like 15 or 20 minutes and are able to utilize that so there is no issue with that however obviously with more sophisticated weapons like high mars rocket artillery they require prolonged and uh, elaborate training you're 100 percent on point here uh, but not the uh, case with uh, shoulder-fired munitions and javelins which are yeah. readily available your uh, your argument on that point is not with me uh, uh, it would be, and I'm not going to identify the uh, the, the flag officers who um, briefed me on that, but what they tell me is 
that the Ukrainians have had a lot of difficulty using the, the uh, javelins, that fortunately we've given them enough of the javelins so that they've been able to be effective. Um, you may be correct. Uh, I can only say to you that uh, two major flag officers, they're not retired, but they are, you'll see them on CNN all the time, um, outstanding uh, generals uh, have that view about their ability to use jab and stingers. And I'm not there, and, and I'm not an expert in the use of uh, weapon systems, so I can't really say. I'm just channeling what I've been told by people I respect and who I think are well qualified to offer an opinion. All I can say is that uh, that's not where the war is right now. The war right now is about getting artillery, apparently, and uh, counter-battery uh, uh, gear and things like that so that you can deal with uh, the Russian uh, offensive maneuvers and at the same time get anti-missile systems and anti-aircraft systems so that you can protect Kiev and other uh, urban areas. And they also need uh, stronger, it seems to me, uh, surface-to-ship uh, uh, anti-missiles so that they can... James, you dropped off mid-sentence. Can you hear us? I think we have to drop him. Well, let's try again. I think he's muted right now. James, you can try to unmute yourself, and we'll get you back to the I dropped box. him in the hopes... James, I dropped you. Please try to re-request to speak, and we'll get you back up. This is a technical difficulty we have sometimes when we lose a speaker's audio. So please request to speak, and we will get you back up here as quick as we can, sir. Again, it's on the bottom left of your screen. There is a mic request button bottom left of your screen. While we wait for James to come back, I will say that what he said about javelins uh, did not click with everything we have heard previously on that. CJ, what's what's going on here? Just want to make sure I don't cut him off. No, I mean, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of reports all over the place of certain weapons, you know, not fitting the... Um, the exact usage criteria, you know, especially in the opening days of the war where really all Ukraine had was javelins and N-laws, you know, there was basically, just like people were getting handed AK-47s, there were some people getting handed these weapons and they're quite complicated, but I think a lot of that has been fixed or has, has gotten better over time. Um, and especially as we've seen with the sort of more complexity added on to the newer weapons that it's being handled quite well. But and when he gets back, I would, I'd love to ask him, you know, sort of how he views, you know, sort of the U.S. strategic communication regarding um, all these weapons and all this training, too, because I think, as Axel pointed out, you know, if we would have thought on week one of the war, we'd be here right now uh, with people in Ukraine shooting HIMARS and, and using a Zoom to ask for follow up. I think that would have been maybe a little unexpected, but in a good way. So. I'd love to, to pick his brain on that in terms of U.S. policy. All right. Well, let's let's give it another 30 seconds or so until he returns. And uh, in the meantime, we have uh, other listeners also amongst us. I can see that our friend Sir Britt is amongst back us now. and giving the continuously now. good amount of news and of good news also from Britain. We should probably try to get him back with us soon. I'm, I'm There's back. James. I'm back. Sorry. Hello. Good to have you back. All right. You were breaking off mid-sentence. I don't know uh, whether you caught this quickly, but uh, maybe you'll continue that. All I was saying is that the uh, uh, argument that uh, one of your participants um, and I were having, I should say the discussion, is not between me and him. I'm merely channeling what two very distinguished and very knowledgeable flag officers who really do know these weapon systems uh, have told me. And they they believe that the training that the Ukraines have is not 
adequate for what they need. They've been able to use the anti-tank javelin missiles, uh, but they're wasting a lot of them. Uh, in any event, that's not as relevant because the types of equipment that will determine what happens from here are more sophisticated NATO uh, equipment that deals with uh, Russian artillery, aircraft, um, its um, uh, Black Sea fleet, and things like that. And it's a bit of a race to the courthouse. Will we get sufficient supplies to the Ukrainians and train them properly before Russia uses its massive men and, and material, um, even at the cost of high casual? And so for right now, you've got a little bit of a stalemate, depending upon which analyst you read. Some will say that Russia has a slight advantage. Others will say that ultimately Ukraine has the advantage. Russia has taken eastern Ukraine. And the open question now is, what does Putin intend to do next? And we don't know the answer to that. I think that Putin is very erratic right now. Thank you, sir. Uh, just a bit of a technical notice here. Please stay on one type of connection, either Wi-Fi or mobile, because if your phone tries to switch in between, that's that might be the issue that basically um, drops you from the space. So uh, back to you. Yeah, I just want to hand it to CJ as we were talking. The systems which actually now in the past weeks are uh, having been planned for quite some time have uh, come into theater and started um, changing certain matters. CJ, you want to go into this? Yeah, I'd be very interested in asking our, our esteemed guest kind of sort of how he views the progression of, of U.S. strategic communications over the course of the war. You know, it started out with um, sort of a very bold maneuver, in my opinion, of the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies releasing quite publicly that Russia was going to invade, something that uh, obviously was true, but a little bit unexpected. And I think people didn't really weren't too sure what to make of it. And as we've talked in the space, this weak delay that Russia did to, to counteract it, um, set them up for failure with their initial invasion quite nicely and uh, allowed Ukraine to get a bit more time to prepare. So I guess my question for you, sir, is how do you see U.S. strategic uh, you know, communications and messaging throughout the course of the war? Do you think it's gotten better, worse, or are there some key moments that stick out for you? I think that the decision to release intelligence apparently was a good move uh, because uh, it helped to unify and animate NATO that's just one very small aspect of uh, strategic communication, although I think it was an important one. Most of the information warfare operations taking place in uh, this conflict are coming from the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians do not publicize exactly what they are doing. In terms of what the United States is doing, we don't really publicize everything that we're doing, nor should we. Uh, what you mostly see from the White House is earned media. They do press conferences. They do statements. They do events such as the meeting with NATO. They do all of that to send messages to um, not only keep NATO unified, but to try and arouse support around the world against Russia. We're doing a good job in publicizing the atrocities that Russia is committing against innocent civilians. And I think that that's very helpful. Ultimately, though, the types of things that would make a greater difference in information warfare uh, are not things that are being publicized. And I, it's hard to tell what Ukraine is doing or, or how well they're doing it. And that has to do with the fact that we seem to be inside the Russian communication system, which means that we can not only gather intelligence 
on what the Russians are doing. It's one reason I think we that the Ukrainians have been successful in knocking off a lot of Russian senior military officers. But they're able to use social media to communicate directly with Russian troops. They can demoralize them. They can create confusion. They can create diversions. There's all kinds of things that go into information warfare. And a lot of this will take place necessarily out of our sight, as well it should. The last thing I would want to see Ukraine doing is publicizing everything it's doing. Uh, On the other side of the fence, I think that Russia actually has done an excellent job uh, more recently, at least at a tactical level, with its uh, strategic communication. Uh, They also are using social media to directly contact Ukrainian troops, to intimidate them, to say that if you continue to fight, not only will we come after you, but we will identify your families and go after them to put out false reports about progress that Russia supposedly is making and things like that and creating an an atmosphere of disinformation so that it becomes harder for somebody that is in the trenches to know what's going on. And the uncertainty of knowing what's going on uh, can be demoralizing and can impede the efficiency of operations. So I think that more recently, the Russians have done a better job Uh, with that. They did, of course, an absolutely horrendous job earlier on. And I personally think that their um, uh, war crimes that they're doing are an unbelievable blunder. I couldn't agree more. And I kind of want to dive deeper into this, because as you mentioned, you know, Russia has has been bad at this and good at this. And and we know they were able to be quite excellent at it in 2014 and 2015, when they were able to fool a large portion of the world into thinking there was some sort of separatist movement in Ukraine, which clearly didn't exist and that that really helped them with their military aims on the ground and prevent more aid from coming in. So I guess in your opinion, sir, what have you seen between 2014, 15 uh, in in our own election troubles and own Russian disinformation troubles? How have you seen the West getting uh, better at this and combating it over time since that point? I'm going to go ahead and get him back up here. Gurney Axel, can you hear me? Loud and clear. I can. uh, We can hear you. You think Twitter spaces would get better over time, not worse, but alas, here we are. So we will just stand by while we uh, get him back up, I assume. I'm, I'm, I'm back up. Here we go. Again. You all Perfect. Thank heard you. that. That's really what I have Please to say. I'm going to turn my mic off and hear what others say. So, sir, were you, were you able to catch my question before you disconnected, or do I need to restate it quickly? If you could restate it. Yeah, so you mentioned, you know, some sort of uh, tactical successes with strategic communications. And, you know, the biggest sort of strategic communications victory that they had, in my opinion, was in 2014 and 15 and and sort of fooling the world into thinking there was some sort of uh, pro-Russian separatist movement in Ukraine, which we, of course, now know was was quite patently false. So I guess in your opinion, how have you seen the West and, you you know, Ukraine by extension get better at compounding disinformation at large in the past eight to nine years? I don't think that Russia has been all that successful with its disinformation on that. They've had a lot of it. Uh, They certainly have had uh, a major effort to try and intimidate uh, the Ukrainians. I don't think that they have been successful with that. The world has certainly not been fooled into thinking that uh, eastern Ukraine is pro-Russian or wants to be part of Russia. Crimea might be a little bit of an exception just because so many Uh, of the people that live in Crimea uh, are Russian and tend to identify with Russia. But I actually don't think that they have been successful in in that respect. Nor do I think that Putin has been 
very successful or effective in making a case that he clearly believes in, which is, from his perspective, uh, Ukraine is essential to Russian security. Let's remember that ever since 1547, when Ivan IV was crowned the first czar through Peter the Great and Catherine the Great and down to the present time, Russians have been obsessed with getting what they consider to be respect from the West and, and border insecurity. Now, people who are uh, on the, in the West, who are on the other side of Russia, would say that that's hypocrisy and self-delusion, that Russia has always been very imperialistic, has always tried to grab territory. And I think that that's true. But I also think it's important in dealing with information warfare or kinetic warfare, we have to understand how the other side thinks. And to do strategy without a clear comprehension of how Russia thinks about these issues makes it more difficult to forge and to execute successful information warfare or kinetic warfare. That's certainly true, but I think what CJ was alluding to in terms of their efficacy and the thrust of uh, the Russian information warfare is the years between 2008 and uh, 2014 culminating in the campaign in Crimea where they infiltrated uh, the space by means of their little green men and also uh, in parallel tried to insinuate to the world and quite easily pulled the wool over a lot of Western media that there were such things as separatists, which there weren't. And Funny enough, the U.S. intelligence agencies did have the data, as had the Brits. We knew what uh, had filtered into the, the country between late 2012 and early 2014. We could identify, essentially, even the, the people who were doing it, and many of them were former FSB agents, respectively identified personnel of GREs. In, in that regard, that is what uh, I think CJ was alluding to. I just wanted to uh, have that corrected so that we're not uh, downplaying the efficacy of the then information warfare approach. And I tend to agree with you. Since then, um, their warfare in Ukraine has been less successful because they were an open warfare uh, fighting a battle of invasion. I, I, would, I would argue that they were not all that successful between 2008 and 2014. Let's not forget that during that period, Ukraine moved to uh, obtain uh, associate membership in the European Union. Uh, the Maidan revolution uh, overthrew uh, a president that was aligned with Russia. Uh, Ukraine uh, took steps, for better or for worse, I'm not sure it was a smart move, to uh, sever uh, relations with uh, this Baltic Union that Russia was promoting economically. Uh, certainly, Russia made an enormous effort to promote its disinformation. I'm just questioning as to how effective it really was. Yeah, I think that there we have to disagree in that regard. And we had our discussion with General Ben Hodges the first time around a few weeks ago, and Mark Hartling, who is also a friend of the program. I think we all came to the conclusion that in the years between 2008 and 2014, the Russians, uh, whilst they failed on many accounts, and that I grant you, of course, they did uh, manage to uh, get uh, the uh, forces and, uh, say, mainstream media and the talking heads aligned in one regard, insinuating that there was such a thing as a separatist movement and that there was a reason for the uh, the party of the regions claim, uh, claiming that they were in some shape or form representing victims, which they were not, evidently, because Viktor Yanukovych and a large amount of those people who sponsored him, including Mr. Firtash, 
did put a lot of money into these campaigns to sow dissent. I mean, I agree with you that, of course, the Maidan is a big success, but the information warfare surrounding it is astonishing. We're still living at the time today where uh, Russian media is portraying this as uh, the usurpation of a uh, government, which is not the case because the Verkhovarada was overwhelmed, voted Mr. Yanukovych when he was evidently lacking the trust of his population out of office. But there you go. Um, we have a couple of questions. I think um, we have one from Stand and Deliver for us, a longstanding listener of our program. I think August was first, if she wants to go jump in. Sure, of course. August, yeah, please th- shoot. Yeah, thank you, Stan. James, you had mentioned something a couple comments ago about the Ukrainian soldiers um, not being well trained, especially, you know, with the javelins and they were having a lot of losses. Do you think now the next round of soldiers that will be hitting the field will be will be better trained now that um, just some, you know, they the war, of course, was a shock. And now that they've got their sea legs and have learned from mistakes and had some time to train some more soldiers, do you think the next round is going to be more battle ready? August, it seems that James is having yet again the same issue because we can't hear him. He may be able to hear us. He's dropped now by himself, so he has captured that he has not been heard. Uh, let's try to... Um, yeah. Well, if anybody else has any thoughts on that while yeah, no, waiting, I'm I, happy to hear them. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we, we've been discussing this already, and CJ already quoted uh, the data which we have from a variety of other parties, and as you would have heard in recent months, uh, we whilst there were issues at the beginning with one batch of Panzerfaust three, which I understood were simply not, not functioning well in the first week, but the remainder of them functioned perfectly fine. The in-laws needed no training and neither did the javelins. The javelins did have uh, a number, or at least one series, which was malfunctioning, actually handed back to the, uh, to the donating nation. Uh, we have no evidence uh, of the claim and, uh, the generals and colonels who generally appear on the various channels, including Mark Hartling and uh, Colonel Spencer, definitely have said otherwise. So let's um, um, focus on that. And well, that's why. Meantime... Yeah, that's why I was curious about it because he did sort of have a alternate view on it. So I was just wondering if he could explain more about that. But I see. Yeah, still see I, I I gave you the names of those people: uh, General McRyan, General Hartling, and General Ben Hodges three of whom I highly respect, and they have had senior positions both in NATO as soccer on the one hand, as well as as head of 7th Army and then, uh, therefore U.S. Army Europe, who, who somewhat have a different base of information. But General Hodges is, of course, based in Frankfurt in Germany um, and probably has a, has a little bit more proximity to some things. All right, thanks. I'll drop down. No worries, August. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for being here. So whilst we're waiting for James, uh, if you want to have further questions and if you can't uh, cycle up, please don't hesitate. Send the questions to Gurney or myself or Walter, and we'll be glad to forward them to our uh, guest when he is back on. He has had a tremendous amount of issues in terms of the uh, cycling up. And uh, let's see how this goes. Give it another uh, 30 seconds. I presume he's restarting his phone. All righty. In the meantime, I think our colleague Artois is amongst the listeners, and he has posted something earlier today, which I would like to highlight once we have a, a moment. It's a little vignette of terror, but I think it's worthwhile here. Artois, if you can hear me, please cycle up. Jun Fan, how are you? I'm doing, doing good, thank you. Uh, you know, I actually did see some reports that the troops were, there were some uh, 
the javelin was a little more complicated in, in some instances, and they were gravitating, therefore, to the Stugnapes and, and the in-laws. But I can't produce that. But, hey, what I was going to respond to is, you know, I think uh, CJ and, and... I agree with you, Junfan, by the way. You're completely right. It was in the first two weeks whilst they were uh, dealing with this, yeah. And, uh, and Patrick, thank you for your, your comments. That was very valuable. And, you know, I think the question is about uh, the training and these forces. And I think CJ said, well, we'll have to see what happens on the offensive. I would say that we're actually seeing it on the defensive because part of this uh, really collapse, this, I wouldn't call it a collapse, but this, you know, there's some TDF forces that were stood up over there on, on south of Sierra Donetsk on that side, on the, on the Lushashank side of the river in the Zeloti pocket that basically uh, have, have, you know, really got pushed around. And, you know, these, these uh, veterans from all this training over the years, I mean, you're talking about 50 to 80% attrition. And that, and so they're standing up people in there and we're you actually, I would argue, you actually, you've seen some evidence that it's of, you know, of, of what, you know, what, it, what it is and what it could be. I mean, I'm not saying that's the way it's going to, uh, I'm not being too negative, but I'm just saying, but that's real evidence on the front of that flank basically collapsing. It's going to, and it's going to push them out of Lisha Shanks because they're going to, they're going to get encircled. They don't have to go straight on to that. They're not going to, they're trying to circle it, close that whole big pocket. The Russians have been repelled this morning in this area. That's exactly the information which we have. And uh, they've been repelled a second time because they tried an evening attack yesterday and uh, sustained extremely heavy losses at the same time whilst their artillery was unable to fire because the Ukrainians, having used HIMARS and, as it seems, also Tochka U, have taken out additional supply depots behind the lines. So I think uh, the battle for Lizzie Chansk is not... No, it's not over. And we'll see. But anyway, uh, that's all. I mean, I'm not trying to be negative, but it's... it's, They just keep grinding on is the thing. And that's why this whole equipment thing, the gradualism, that's where it all... Look, that's why we've been talking about it. Because this stuff, they've been able to push before. I'm with you, mate. I am with you. I would have liked to see the high mass earlier. Thank you very much for taking the time, Jonathan. Stay with us. Artoine, uh, whilst I understand, by the way, our, our dear guest has sent a message um, uh, to Battlemoos that his phone has died. So he's obviously trying to find a charger to make this work, but he could send a message from the desktop. So we probably will have to have a second part of the segment a little later. In the meantime, I wanted to have a quick word with Artoire and then go to Gurney. Artoire, we had a, a discussion earlier via chat and you were highlighting something uh, particularly insidious? Uh, yes, insidious is, is the right word and for, for multiple reasons. Um, so as we all know, and as we should know, it's been quite quite um, well publicised. The Wagner mercenary group very active, particularly in the uh, in the east of Ukraine. Um, prior to their forced withdrawal from the north of Kyiv, uh, they were also uh, involved in activities around there regarding uh, the targeted kill list and stuff that we had, we had, we've heard about. Um, but the uh, one of I guess let's let's say one of the unique things about uh, the Wagner Mercenary Group is is they're actually incredibly open um, regarding their activities, their motives, um, and their uh, their I mean evil <laughs> belief systems. Let's put it like that. Um, so for a bit of context to this, um, back in 2017 when Wagner were operating in Syria, um, in this particular instance near the Al Sher gas plant in in Syria. Um, they got a hold of uh, a Syrian opposition figure uh, whose name was uh, Hamdi Bouta. Um, he has a longer Arabic name, which I, which I won't um, attempt to pronounce, but 
if you Google his name, Hamdi Bhutta, H-A-M-D-I-B-O-U-T-A, you'll find the information. But uh, essentially, they 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 filmed uh, what can really be described as a snuff video, where they tortured this gentleman um, with uh, with a sledgehammer for an extended period of time. Uh, they then removed his hands with a shovel. Uh, they decapitated him and then they burnt the body. Um, and they filmed the whole thing. Um, but again, to give you an insight into the, the mindset of these people, not only did they film it, uh, they published the video uh, proudly. And they actually, if, if you frequent any of their social media, which I don't recommend for your own mental health, uh, they uh, happily and gleefully intersperse their kind of propaganda videos from Ukraine with clips um, from this notorious snuff film. And uh, the, the sledgehammer in particular has become a, a bit of a dog whistle amongst them and their followers uh, in sort of wider Russia and in the Russian armed forces. And earlier today, I was uh, I was browsing through Telegram and one of their larger channels posted an image um, of a two Wagner gentlemen, or what appears to be two Wagner gentlemen, more on that in a second. Uh, one of them is sitting down with an accordion um, this is a this is a, a reference to the Wagner referred themselves as the orchestra in Russian. They don't actually call themselves Wagner, so they'll often post images of themselves posing with uh, brass instruments, accordions, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, and the gentleman next to him is standing, posing with a sledgehammer um, in, a, in a blatant dog whistle to the to the infamous video from 2017. Um, again, really just to drive home this point that not only did they film it, but they're proud of it. Uh, if, if you go deep enough into the rabbit hole that is Wagner and associated groups, um, they sell merchandise, they sell stickers, they sell uh, badges, all depicting um, this war crime uh, and torture video. Particularly the, the, the image of the sledgehammer features very prominently. You'll see it. They'll, they'll slip it in. They'll have, wear patches of it and this kind of thing. Um, they were part of a notorious, particularly notorious group of Wagner mercenaries who called themselves the ISIS hunters in Syria around that time. So they posted this image today. Um, they claim it's from Kherson in Ukraine, one of the occupied territories. Um, but interestingly, the caption also mentions that these are not necessarily Roscardia, uh, or, or sorry, they're not necessarily Wagner mercenaries. They are actually fully paid, contracted members of the Russian Roscardia or their National Guard. Um, so this this is just if we needed any sort of further evidence of the close ties between the sort of on paper contract Russian soldiers and the Wagner group, um, their shared beliefs and uh, evidently their 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 willingness to celebrate war crimes and torture and snuff videos, and um, this is the perfect example of it. So if you'd like to see it, I haven't posted any of any any of the clips or anything from the video. I really don't recommend you go watch it. But if if you want to see the image that I'm talking about that they posted today. With these kind of dog whistles, um, allegedly from her son, it's it's on my it's appended to my profile, um, and you can I, I think things like this sometimes it's 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 good to take a second and, and really absorb them, to realise the the caliber of, of evil um, that the Ukrainians are currently dealing with within their borders. So that was it. Thank you. Yeah, and this brings us back to the necessity of uh, um, phasing out any approach to gradualism and. Uh, supporting in Ukraine with significantly more weapon systems than beforehand because they need to be able to free Kherson as quickly as dang possible. Um, the indications which we've had, and you may remember that a uh, friend of the program, uh, Ola, Oscar Domestic, Domesticated as her handle on Twitter from Odessa, 
has been with us many times and she has uh, obviously met and received a number of friends, guests and people who just fled Kherson, Kherson Oblast recently. And uh, the pattern which uh, shines up through all those uh, stories and anecdotes is um, very worrying and uh, to the best of our knowledge and from what seeps through from uh, the intelligence side is that uh, the atrocities being committed by Russian troops in the oblast are far beyond what we've seen so far and that things will get a lot more. So take this image of these criminals for what it is. It is a moniker, it is a sign, and it's an alarm bell. And that alarm bell needs to ring louder. And in that regard, I just wanted to come back to one thing because we've had many, many DMs and the past 20 minutes about uh, the manpower systems which the Ukrainians had received, be it Panzerfaust, uh, be it the Enlor um, or the Javelin system. And we've discussed their efficacy, their use, um, both also the fact that some of the Javelin systems were relatively old when delivered, but still functional. And uh, nevertheless, we have seen that the Ukrainians in uh, with their light infantry in repelling the uh, attack vectors of the Russians in the north uh, have made great strides and made great use of the javelin. And so I was wondering, because Gurney and I had been talking about this earlier, he had a few things which he had, uh, uh, say, gleaned from both the Glavin, uh, javelin uh, systems as well as their use in the Ukrainian army. Gurney. Yeah, hey, thanks, Axel. So maybe I'd, I'd just sort of elaborate real quick the process for the audience um, on, on the javelin. It, it's a fairly straightforward system but it's it's not necessarily intuitive and so maybe if i address the the context of of the learning environment the standard learning environment for it it might make a little bit more sense when people are are saying you know hey these things are incredibly effective but then they might hear from someone else saying hey i heard you know they're they're wasting them or or you know conflating that statement with well if there's wastage then it it might not be effective or or they can't use it and maybe i can um disambiguate those together here so um so the so the javelin um it's not exactly a point and shoot weapon and what i mean by that is it's it's not like some other um anti-tank weapons and where that are literally point and shoot you know so long as you know the sequence to arming it whether it's sliding you know a a safety lever pushing a button um you know basically three or four actions popping the site up uh it's not just basically fire and forget from from that perspective um so so in theory it's fire and forget but just i'm going to back up a step here the the command launch unit the main module of it is software driven everything with the with the javelin is software driven um, in terms of what you do with it, it's not necessarily pointing. You're actually bracketing. You're using the command launch unit. You're using a control system that's very easy to use, very quick, very efficient. But you're going to bracket targets because the computer on the system uh, can only do its job if you help it interpret what you're seeing through there. So there's a learning process to engage with that, to understand the the connection between what you as the operator do and what the software can then do afterwards. And so in that environment, it's just basically like anything else. Practice makes perfect. So if you're allowed in a normal standard training pipeline, you can practice because the included software that that uses the actual command launch unit, there's a software module that is where you learn to train on it. You can do it in a matter of, of, of days or afternoons. Um, I don't know what the training length is now. I think it might be like three full day sessions or four. But with anything, it's practice, 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 right? 
Um, if you used a Nintendo controller, right, it's pretty easy to use. And in hindsight, you can point to anyone and say, hey, this is easy. But there was probably a small learning curve to where you figured out when you moved buttons what happened. And not just how to use it, but that you got comfortable and started to do it automatically. So in a normal environment, you use the software simulation inside of one of the units to actually envision that there's, um, you can see troops, tanks, you can see different objects that the weapon is capable of doing. And what you do with that is you practice. So you are moving, you are changing the brackets, you're selecting a few parameters for how the weapon interacts with you and how the weapon's gonna interact with the target. And then once you do that, you can go through the fire and see if it were to make a hit. Meaning, did you give it enough parameters? Did you get the bracket close enough? Did you select something that that it was capable, you know, the missile warhead is capable of actually connecting on, right? Because targets can move, targets look different, you know, distances, there's minimum army. So it's a, it's a fairly simple weapon. It's fairly simple to learn. There's nothing super complex, but you just need practice with it. So if I hear someone, um, say, you know, they were trained up on it. That's great. If I was trained up on it and you just sent me out there and it's my very first time, you know, if, if, if I'm under combat, if I'm being fired upon and my life depends on it to make that kill on that BMP or that thing, you know, that's going to be a stressful environment. So if I hear statements like, you know, they're wasting them, my, my first question I ask myself is I say, it's not perhaps that someone might be incapable of using the weapon. It's not perhaps that the weapon's ineffective. It's not perhaps that the weapon is hard to use. It's just merely a matter of having the time and patience to do that. And the Ukrainians don't have that same opportunity, but they're learning, they're showing us that they can use it. So if one of them uh, is using this, and I've heard that they don't have necessarily the software package, the software environment provided with it, but that's a very minor thing that seems that it could be adapted, meaning the software practice unit um, that you could, with that software practice unit, give a javelin and get a first time kill. But I'm, you know, if, if I'm just relying on experience, if they don't get a kill on their first time, um, I'm expecting them very quickly in very short order after that to get a kill. So in my mind, n- none of that is wastage. Could it be better? Sure. Um, but that's, you know, that could be fixed with software practice. But anyways, I thought I'd add that context because um, it's not necessarily one of those weapons where you just literally put it on your shoulder and just, you know, point it and use, you know, some sort of um, basic sight and just pull the trigger. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more than that, but certainly not beyond the scope of what they've been doing. And they've been certainly effective with it. So that's what I thought I'd add. Raven, I don't have a a clue for that part of the conversation. There's somebody ahead of me, let them go. I want to go back to Artur's comment on the image. Yeah, I just just wanted to say that, that very early on when these uh, retired generals were operational, I think there was some information out there that gave them the 